0: verses 12 to 18 oh, dear, dear, dear. and it's on page 1179 if you have a pew bible therefore my dear friends as you have always obeyed not only in my presence but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and act according to his good purpose. Do everything without complaining or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life, in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labour for nothing. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me.
1: Someone on one occasion was uh, talking about sermon construction, putting a sermon together. And they said a sermon should have a beginning and an ending, and they should be as close together as possible. You won't be surprised to learn, I'm not very impressed with that, but you might be encouraged to know that neither am I impressed by those who suggest that a sermon should have a beginning and an ending, and the ending should be as far away from the beginning as possible. Because there are some people who judge a sermon by its length, not by its content, not by how well it's dealt with the passage or the text. This reminds me of sermon class. When I was training for the Christian ministry, and we're going back now into the 1960s, we used to have a weekly event called Sermon Class. We were on a rotor as students, and when it was your turn, you had to prepare a message and you had to preach that message in the context of a, a worship service for which you were also responsible And your congregation was made up of the teaching staff and the students. And when you'd finished, you left the chapel and the congregation followed behind you. And you went down into one of the lecture theatres and there your sermon was dissected. (laughs) It was meant to be uh, constructive criticism. But I can remember on more than one occasion, the principal would accuse a student of using a text as a coat hanger. And what he meant was, he had his text, he had his sermon, and he hung the sermon on the text. It didn't come out of the sermon. It wasn't an expression of the truths within the sermon. It was just a coat hanger text. Now, why am I saying these things? Well, because the passage in front of me this morning, and this is true right through Philippians and indeed right through Scripture, but it's especially true here, there's so much material within this passage that without any exaggeration, I could spend two or three messages looking at the truth here and not exhaust it. It is so rich. What I can try to do, within a reasonable space of time, what I can try to do is highlight the main points, reference points, so that when you, as I hope you will, come and look at this passage yourselves, you'll use those reference points to guide you through what is an amazing passage of Scripture. So, as we start this process, let's look first of all at our present responsibility. And our present responsibility is captured in the phrase, work out. And the context of the phrase is verses 12 and 13. I'm just going to read verse 12. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The very clear message of the New Testament is that we are unable to live the Christian life in our own strength and our own willpower. We have to learn, and often, if we're honest, we have to relearn The truth of what Jesus said to us when he said, without me, you can do nothing. And we also need to learn a complementary New Testament truth, which is, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. The Lord wants us to learn both the necessity and the positive results of such dependency as we seek to live out the Christian life. One of the fundamental truths we must learn about Christian growth is that on the one hand we are responsible and on the other hand we are dependent. And just notice how clearly this is taught in verse 12 and 13. I'm reading partway through verse 12. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. And what should impress us is that there is a worker in each of these verses. In verse 12, it is the Christian worker. Work out your own salvation. But in verse 13, it is God who is working, for we have God who is working in you. So in one verse, we have the Christian who's working out, and in the other verse, we have the truth that God is working in. Work out your own salvation with fear and with trembling. It needs to be emphasized, because some people have tried to make it different, But it needs to be emphasized that this is not working for salvation. The text will not support such an idea, although some translations have tried to make it mean that. And the New Testament as a whole will not support such an idea. We do not work for our salvation, it is of grace. Alec Mottier has put it very helpfully, I think, in these words. Your own salvation is to be understood not as an objective yet to be reached, certainly not as a a benefit to be merited, but as a possession to be explored and to be enjoyed more and more. And the possession of salvation is the gift of, of God's grace. So who is responsible for your growth in grace? Who's responsible for mine? And the answer is you are responsible for your growth in grace and I am responsible for mine. Work out your own salvation with fear, and with trembling. In emphasizing this, there are certain things we shouldn't overlook. We mustn't overlook the importance of Christian fellowship. The New Testament doesn't know about isolated Christians. We should be in fellowship with one another. We need each other in the Christian life. There are some things that we learn better together than when we're on our own. Christian friendship is important for the living of the Christian life. Christian friends who may have walked the Christian way for a longer period than ourselves can, together with their friendship, bring much that will help and encourage us in our Christian lives. Moving from fellowship and friendship to the higher plane of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives... The Holy Spirit who is active in Christian fellowship, the Holy Spirit who is active in Christian friendship, is also the one who guides us as we read Scripture, who helps us in our praying, whose ministry is vitally important to equip us for the work that we do within the Christian church, and so on and so forth. We mustn't forget these things. But nonetheless, it comes back to this point. It is my responsibility and it is your responsibility. Work out your own salvation with fear and and trembling. And it's not a secondary matter. It's not something that we can attend to after we've done everything else. This is the highest priority. Jesus said, seek first. Seek first his kingdom, and his righteousness. William Hendrickson has said, the meaning and the tense of the verb work out indicates continuous, sustained, strenuous effort. And we need to be very much, it needs to be very much in our minds that our obedience in this matter is never to be seen in our eyes as the means of earning merit or blessing from God. Although we make every effort to work out our salvation, our best works, our best endeavors, fall short of the perfection that God's Word speaks about. And if we're honest, and there's no point in not being honest on a matter like this, if we're honest, we can never obey God with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our mind. And this is why we must learn to live the Christian life within the gospel, Live the Christian life within the gospel every day. Because it's a glorious truth that every one of us should appreciate and rejoice in. The gospel is not just for unbelievers. The gospel is for believers as well. We live out the gospel, the the Christian life, within, within the gospel. B.B. Warfield, great Bible teacher who ministered towards the second half of the 19th century, early part of the 20th century, he's written this. We must always be accepted for Christ's sake, or we cannot be accepted at all. This is not true of us only when we believe, it is just as true after we have believed. It will continue to be true as long as we live. Our need of Jesus does not cease with our believing, nor does the nature of our relationship to him ever alter, no matter what our attainments in Christian graces or our achievements in Christian behavior may be it is always on his blood and righteousness alone that we can rest. And so in the light of this, we are not surprised to see that in the verse before us, we are to work out our salvation with fear and with trembling because we are on holy ground. The fear of which our text speaks, is not the fear of a lost sinner before a holy God. It is the fear of a child before a loving Heavenly Father. It is not the fear of what He might do to us, but it's the fear of the hurt that we might do to Him. We are to work out our salvation with fear And with trembling. Now, in verse 13, we see the other side of this truth. For it is God who works in you. That's a glorious truth. It is God who works in you. But it's a truth that requires, in the first place, a word of warning. We're all aware that there are a number of very challenging things that we find in Scripture. Perhaps one of the most challenging for the believer is this. We can grieve the Holy Spirit. And that means that we can hinder and we can limit what God can do in our lives because we've grieved the Holy Spirit. We've put out the Spirit's fire, as it were, according to J.B. Phillips' paraphrase. It can happen in the individual Christian life. It can happen within a Christian fellowship. And so we must never forget this side of the truth. We must never become insensitive to the moral and spiritual conditions by which we enjoy and experience the indwelling activity of God in our lives. It is God who works in you it does require a word of warning. We do not want to grieve the Holy Spirit. We do not want to hinder God's working, whether in our own personal lives or within the life of the fellowship. But if it requires a word of warning, here, surely, in these very words, is a very clear word of encouragement. And this is seen especially in the verb which Paul uses, which describes the work, God's work. It's work that achieves its purpose. It is work that is guaranteed as to its outcome. It is what we might call effective working. God cannot be deflected from his course, nor fail to achieve his purpose. That's a glorious truth. It's so good, it's worth repeating. God cannot be deflected from his course, nor fail to achieve his purpose. It's expressed wonderfully in an old hymn, which we actually sang at the nine o'clock service. The work which his goodness began, the arm of his strength will complete. His promise is yes and amen and never was forfeited yet. Things future nor things that are now nor all things below or above can make him his purpose forgo or sever my soul from his love. There's a lovely word way back in the Old Testament we go back as far as Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 7. And there we read this. The Lord, the Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you. He loves you. Because he loves you. And as someone has said, it's no explanation, and yet, it's the greatest explanation of all. He loves you, because he loves you. The reason is in his heart. If you're looking into your life at this moment and you're struggling with a matter and you're wondering, you know, does God really love me? And you're looking into yourself for the answer, you're looking in the wrong place. The place to look is the heart of God as revealed in Jesus. He loves us because he loves us. Nothing can make him his purpose forego or sever my soul from his love. So verses 12 and 13 speak about our present responsibility. We are to work out our salvation, but knowing that God is working in. As we move on, we come to the practical expression of the Christian life. And this is captured in the phrase, do everything. The practical expression of the Christian life is seen in the phrase, do everything. And the immediate context, verses 14 and 16, the first part of verse 16. Do everything without complaining or arguing. So that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and a depraved generation, in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. Now, whenever I read that, and I've spent a lot of time with it lately, the one thing that impresses me every time is breadth. There's a tremendous sense of breadth here. One commentator has said this, Paul does not specify anything which in fact we are to do. I have a problem with that comment because I think Paul is very specific and I think he's very clear because he says, do everything. And I don't think you could be more specific than that. Everything is a wonderful word in the sense of its embrace because everything covers everything. Do everything. So how do we approach everything in our lives? How do we do it? Well, this is the New Living Translation of verses 14 and 15. In everything you do, stay away from complaining and arguing so that no one can speak a word of blame against you. You are to live clean, honest, innocent lives as children of God in a dark world full of crooked and perverse people. Let your lives shine brightly before them. It's very clear, and it's a very strong answer to those who suggest that we can, as it were, put our Christianity away in a box and bring it out occasionally, like on a Sunday. It's a very clear answer to those who come from the secular point of view and have never really understand the true nature of the Christian life, and they'll say to us something like this: "Don't bring your Christian faith into the office. Don't bring it into the place of work. Don't bring it onto the sports field." And what does Scripture say? Do everything. Wherever you are, whatever you're involved in, do everything. Do everything. And the scripture makes it clear that if that is true of us, then we are those who are holding out the word of life. We're holding out the word of life by our lives. This is a case, and there are many of them in scripture, where there are two possible meanings. It could mean hold out the word of life, or it could mean hold on to the word of life. Most translations will choose one or the other, and the one that they haven't gone for, they'll put as a footnote reference. So if they've chosen hold out the word of life, you'll find somewhere as a footnote reference, hold on to the word of life. But when we encounter things like this, there is a question that I think we need to ask every time. And the question is this. Was the fact that there are two meanings hidden from the writer? When Paul wrote these words, was it hidden from him that his words contained these two meanings? Well, of course it wasn't. He was fully aware that what he wrote had these two meanings, and therefore, they're both meant to be there. And it isn't a question of choosing one over and against another because they are complementary truths. And it's obvious when you think about it because how can you hold out the word of life if you're not holding on to it? And I'd go further than that. If the word of God hasn't got hold of us as well, then we're not going to shine brightly In a challenging world. So we have to hold on to the word in order that we might live it out. And that's the meaning. Living out in our lives and by the way we speak and by the way we do things and so on. We have to grasp the word in order that we might live it out in our lives. And you know, the phrase here is wonderful word of life. I love the scriptures. I'm glad that we have God's word. But I'm saying that in that way, and I'm holding this Bible in my hand because God's word is more than just words on a page. It is words on a page, but it's more than that. It is the word of life. It's the life-giving word. That's a marvelous description of the power of Scripture. Let me just share a personal word of testimony here. When I, when I finished in school, I went into the printing trade and I served an apprenticeship as a compositor. Now, compositors hardly exist these days. Um, But compositors used to set up the type, not always by hand, but very often. Computers have taken over now. But I was a compositor, or at least I was training to be one. And I worked in a large printing office. We did all sorts of printing, but as an apprentice, I was given a leaflet both to design and to set up as far as the type was concerned. And in the process of setting up this leaflet, which was, I don't particularly like the term, but it was a religious leaflet, um, I had to set up the words of Matthew chapter 24 and verse 30. They will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and with great glory. I'd read it many times before, I suspect. But on that occasion, in the middle of a busy printing office, with compositors working all the way around me, with the printing machines trundling out the pages not far away, with all the noise that was there, I had there in that print office an encounter with God that caused me to stop working for a moment, or more than a moment, I suspect. No one else was aware of it. But the impact of that scripture on me, at that point, was immense and played a very, very significant part in my calling to Christian ministry. How important that the word of life shines out from the lives of believing people. And let's be encouraged The darker the environment, the brighter the light will shine. So, our present responsibility, captured in the words work out, seen in verses 12 and 13. Then, our practical expression of the Christian life, captured in the words do everything in the context of verses 14 through to 16, the first part. And then finally, what we have is the prophetic dimension of the Christian life. And this is seen in verse 16, partway through the verse, and on through. In order that I may boast on the day of Christ, that I did not run or labor for nothing, But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. The prophetic dimension of the Christian life is seen in the phrase that Paul uses there, the day of Christ. It's a phrase that points us in the direction of the second coming and to the climax of history. There are other phrases used in Scripture. For example, the day of the Lord. But that phrase always seems to be associated with judgment. It points to end times, but it always seems to be associated with judgment. But the day of Christ, this is significant because it is a phrase that is always spoken of as pointing to a blessing or the great blessing of the day of Christ. In the first chapter of Philippians, there's a verse which I think should be amongst the many that every Christian treasures and holds closely in heart and mind. Chapter 1, verse 6. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you, and that's the good work of salvation, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It's an amazing verse. It gathers so much New Testament teaching, indeed biblical teaching, into this one verse. The day of Christ Jesus is the day of his second coming. It is the day when in our experience, our salvation will be complete. And yet within the context of this hope, Paul was facing a very, very real challenge. Verses 17 and 18 point us in the direction of that challenge. Do not forget, we mustn't forget, he was a prisoner. He was in danger of his life. There was every likelihood that he was going to be martyred for his faith. He was going to be, in his own words, poured out like a drink offering. But in such a world where there was so much uncertainty, Paul was sure of this. He was sure of his salvation in Christ. And he knew that whether he would meet his Savior through martyrdom or at the coming, he was sure of his salvation. And quite remarkably, the characteristic note of this letter is captured in that word, rejoice. So much to be unsure about, but so confident of this. He who's begun a good work, he'll carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Our present responsibility, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The practical expression of the Christian life. Do everything. Hold out the word of life, even as you're holding on to it. And the prophetic dimension of the Christian life captured in that phrase, the day of Christ. As I end, can I just spend a moment talking of two words? These words Have often been linked to the second coming of Christ. The one has no place, the other has a very real place. The first word is the word immediate, it has no place. If you're in the company of someone who starts either using that word or talking in that sort of way about the second coming of Christ, be wary. It won't be long before they'll set a date and a time. Immediate. It creates lazy Christians. The letters to the Thessalonians would give an example of that. The other word, and this word has a place, and it's very real, in its New Testament setting, imminent. Imminent. The coming of Jesus is imminent. That doesn't mean immediate, but it does mean that it could be at any time. And when we look at the New Testament church, and when we see the New Testament church facing the very real challenges of being the followers of Jesus in New Testament times, what sustained them? Well, much. But... Certainly, the hope of the coming of Jesus, it inspired them as they waited for the coming that could be at any time. And as we, as we in the 21st century, face the very real challenges of being Christians today, it is the imminent coming, the fact that it could be at any time that we should live out our Christian lives. It's a great thought. It's a wonderful inspiration. Just keep it in your heart and treasure it. As Christian people, if we are going to work out our salvation and if we are going to shine brightly, then let the hope of his coming inspire our hearts and for something that we are waiting with anticipation and ever grateful to God for promises that are yet to be And by his grace will be part of it. For he who has begun a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus.